Well, we, I think we all have in our mind's eye what it probably looks like um, in places where really big decisions are made, really important things are happening. Maybe, maybe you think of uh, the Oval Office of the President uh, sitting surrounded by advisors, secretaries, grim-faced military brass and and uh, chiefs of staff, those people never smile, and news cameras and microphones poking in every direction, and the glare of lights that electrify the moment as the world's most powerful chief executive reads a terse statement about a dramatic military response to some um, event somewhere in the world. Or, or maybe it's, um, it's an emergency operating room uh, where a terrible accident has brought in a victim, medevaced, and is surrounded by a team of surgeons and nurses and technicians, all feverishly and simultaneously performing multiple life-saving procedures, clawing the man back from, uh, from death. And yet, uh, in all the larger scheme of life, uh, basically, uh, that same drama goes on year after year, century after century, in this fallen, self-important world. Rather, we should wonder what it's like in heaven, uh, the real nerve center of the universe. And what happens there? How does God want us to see and think about him in heaven? Um, it's not what you think. Uh, when God draws back the curtain, and there's only a few places in the Bible where this happens, when God draws back the curtain and shows us a vision of heaven, what is it that he chooses to show us? Um, well, that's, um, that's a very important uh, topic um, for us to consider. Uh, what we see in our text this evening is a magnificent throne and glorious worship, unlike anything we could ever imagine. So turn with me to the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. We're going to look simply at that chapter and not 4 and 5. We began the study of uh, the book of Revelation back on the third Sunday of September uh, when we looked at the first chapter of Revelation and saw this vision of the coming king. Next in chapters 2 and 3, which we looked at throughout October uh, September and November, uh, through November, we, we saw Jesus' message to the seven churches, those instructive admonitions and pictures for us and for the church in, in every age. But now we're ready to, to jump into chapters 4 to 22, which I was going to present uh, in overview uh, with seven or eight or nine strokes. Um, in which we're told, verse 1, what must take place after this, um, for one. A reference uh, which should, um, we should understand to include the whole history from John's time to our time and beyond. What must take place after this. This evening, we're going to just look at one chapter, the fourth chapter, where John is called away again by the Spirit and given this vision of heaven. So um, pick up your Bibles or turn on your digital devices and uh, follow uh, carefully the text. Remember, God offers a blessing to the one who reads it and the one who hears it. 
Revelation chapter 4. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there um, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, uh, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creature uh, gives glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who was seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. So a door opens up to heaven, not referring to the heavens, plural, uh, not that referring to the, to the universes of stars and supernovas and planets that we, we look up to on a clear night, but rather the place inhabited by angels and divine beings. It's also part of God's creation, uh, but it's likely not a physical location with physical coordinates uh, that can be found on your computer, Isaac, um, but uh, are something that rather uh, is um, without, and probably in another dimension, uh, without, uh, in an altogether different realm, which we, we can't see in this life. Now, uh, God the Father is in heaven, but notice that, that and he is the main fact of the entire chapter, but he's not really described to us in these verses at all. We're simply told by John that, uh, that what he had seen as the appearance of jasper and carnelian, semi-precious stones, because God is a spirit after all, and gloriously and absolutely 
indescribable uh, and could never be seen uh, in anything approaching the glorious fullness by uh, the eyes of men. But this God deigns to reveal himself to John and to us in a manner that he judges we can grasp, that we can somehow understand as a king and who rules from this magnificent throne situated in the center of heaven. And we're told uh, of a certain radiance uh, uh, that uh, surrounds uh, the throne, describing uh, uh, as a rainbow, um, resembling an emerald. So God is not described. Um, He's like a jasper, like Cornelius, uh, like like a, a rainbow covered with a rainbow. We're not going to learn uh, anything more than that at this point. But something of the measure of his glory may be estimated by the fantastical creatures that surround him. Uh, First of all, there's this sea of glass. Uh, We read of that in other places. Um, For example, in Exodus 24, uh, it speaks of Aaron and Moses and Nadab and Abihu and the twenty uh, seven or the twenty of uh, the seventy elders of of Israel who went up and saw the God of Israel. Whatever they saw, we're not told. But under his feet was something like pavement made of sapphire, clear as uh, the sky itself. Now, there's no uh, no certainty regarding the meaning of this sea of glass, so I'll say nothing more. I suppose it simply adds magnificence and glory to God on the throne, uh, that it's all situated on this sea of glass. But again, remember uh, that, <clears throat> that these are human descriptions of heavenly realities uh, given to accommodate our earthly limitations. You and I can't possibly understand heaven. Uh, this is the best we can do. Now, there's also seven blazing torches which John identifies as the seven spirits of God, and which I believe we're to understand as nothing less than the sevenfold fullness of the perfection of God, the Holy Spirit, who hovers around the Father and the Son. Now, next, and I think very close to the throne, are the four living creatures, who are cherubim, the highest order of, of, of angels. In the book of Genesis, um, we're told of the, uh, that two cherubim guard uh, the, 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 the Garden of Eden with fiery swords so that Adam and Eve, uh, after they're expelled, can't return. And, and we have descriptions of, of the cherubim uh, in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, uh, where the likeness of two cherubim fashioned out of hammered gold stretch across the atonement cover of the Ark of the Holy of Holies. So you get some idea of how important these, these creatures are. Um, their image is revealed by God to Moses, who has them embroidered also in the curtain so that surround the tabernacle, and later they're carved into the wooden doors of the inner sanctuary of the temple. Now here in John's description, they're described in greater detail. Great cherubim called the four living creatures replete with wings and sleepless eyes all about them. And their faces representing a man, an ox, a lion, and an eagle may be intended to, to um, <clears throat> remind us of the cleverness, the strength, 
and the fierce regality and the, and the majestic uh, uh, fleetness of God. But especially, we're to regard the cherubim uh, as the guardians of the holiness of God. Um, and we see here, uh, and also in the prophecy of, of Isaiah, that they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. And it happens all the time. But it isn't a bore. It isn't, as I think it was um, Clowney, Dr. Clowney once said, you know, they're not just sitting around going, holy, holy, holy. <laughs> it's not like that at all. It's, they're, they're overtaken by the holiness of God and they cry out. And... Um, and uh, it's pretty uh, general agreement also about the 24 elders uh, surrounding uh, the, uh, God. Um, it seems that they most likely are to be taken to be representing uh, the church of the Old Testament and New Testament age. The 12 patriarchs added and joined by the 12 apostles, which after all represent the saints, the glorified souls of believers of every age. And they're all alive and they're together worshiping God. They're worshiping the Lord. That's beautiful and so significant. They sit on 24 thrones and they wear golden crowns of victory, but, but they, they're continually bowing before God and throwing, casting their thrones, their, their crowns down in acknowledgement of His absolute supreme honor and authority. It's a magnificent a scene. But let me remind you, it's it's a vision, and we're to regard it as such. John is in an ecstatic state. He is in the Spirit, as he tells us. And so what he sees, what he literally sees, uh, he sees, but for us, as will happen throughout the book of Revelation, it may not be something to be taken absolutely literally. There is a God, and there is a heaven. But we're not required to imagine that there is an actual material, physical throne surrounded by 12 um, uh, other literal thrones and uh, a literal lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, as we'll discover later. These things may uh, not exist at all in material form, but God reveals himself to us again as, as a manner to express a very important spiritual truth to John and to us. And, and the first spiritual truth that we're to get from this vision is, uh, of God uh, is that his throne is at the center of everything. That God is glorious and his throne is at the center of everything. Now listen, this is a fact and a very important fact that the world, the entire world from one side of the globe to the other um, in the ultimate sense, does not revolve around the moon or the sun or even, as some may suppose, around mankind itself. It is not heliocentric, uh, sun-centered. It is not anthrocentric, man-centered. It's rather theocentric. It's God, God-centered. Um, which is to say that that all of creation and all of truth and all of reality revolves around God. God is the center who mysteriously holds all things together and gives meaning to everything. This great 
passage, this picture given us in Revelation 4, is, is that God exists and that He's on the throne and that He rules. And if He rules in heaven, let us be sure that He rules also on earth. And He gives purpose to His creation. But the only part of His creation that won't believe this, that won't believe the only ones who with the perverse temerity suppress that knowledge, the only ones in all of heaven and all of earth who are still kicking against the pricks are who? Men and fallen angels. Satan, one of the greatest of angels, sought to throw off the rule of God. He's a liar. He's the father of lies and self-deceit. And Adam and Eve followed in his steps. What a miserable experiment that was. And when will we admit it? Here we are in the last days. And God shows us this one last picture. What do we see? What does he want us to know? What does he want to show us? He shows us that God is still on the throne from which flashes uh, lightning and, and thunder uh, uh, which emanates from it continuously. Uh, nothing else in heaven and earth has a problem with this. Every plant, every animal knows its creator. The plants lift up their, their branches to praise God. And every flower opens just as it was supposed to open. It doesn't say, well, you know, today I don't think I'll open. You know, God has been irritating me recently. I'm not sure I even believe him. No. They know what to do, and they do it. You know, God, and, and we need to knuckle under too. Uh, God, it's God on the throne and not us. It's God that must be first in our lives and not ourselves. It's God who must be worshipped and adored, not us. It's not about us. It's all about God. And our rejection of the rule of God is petulant and perverse and suicidal. Get rid of God? if that were possible, and everything would fall apart in utter chaotic meaninglessness. Now, that said, the other great thing that jumps out at us in this text in Revelation 4 is uh, beside the throne of God. That's the first thing. The second thing that should attract us is the worship that we, we see. The, the fact that four living creatures never cease worshiping Day and night, calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It was and is and is to come. Uh, these are the highest order of angels. They stand above everything else in heaven, save God himself. And what are they doing? They're worshiping God. They could be doing any number of things, I suppose. <laughs> they can do whatever they want, I suppose. But, but what are they doing? They're worshiping God. And and then there's the 24 elders, the greatest men of the church, representing the leaders of the church of every age. And what are they described as doing? What does God want us to see them doing? Well, they're forever throwing their, their golden crowns down on the ground and worshiping God for eternity. That's the measure of the glory and the divinity and the, and the worthy perfection of God. He fills the heart of heaven with eternal worship. And why? Because he is the creator and sustainer of all things. Verse 11. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. God the creator 
writes Westminster Professor Vern Poitras, has absolute mastery, ownership, and control over what he has created. In creation, every speck, every atom, every detail of pattern, the very being of everything is derived from the hand of God. His triumph is absolute. His power and wisdom unfathomable. His glory superb. For which he is to be worshipped here in this vision. And if this is the manner and habit of the glorious inhabitants of heaven, how much more men and women here on earth, if God the Holy Spirit gives glory to the Father, if the holy cherubim and the four living creatures, if the patriarchs and apostles are on their knees before him, what do you suppose is expected of us? But instead, men stand and sniff and prattle on with their silly theories and cooked up ideas all the while desperately seeking to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Seeking to erase the creator-creature distinction. Any fiction will serve as we seek to escape the fact that we are all created beings under the authority, under the responsibility, and under the care of God. Any excuse will do as we bury our heads in the sands of our worldly preoccupations and seek to deny the reality that belongs to God as we proudly refuse to to bow the knee to the Creator and Sustainer who daily gives us life and breath and everything else. God gives us this glimpse of heaven. Uh, And what is the first thing He shows us? What does He want us to see? Not the mechanics of how things are done or why they're happening. It doesn't give us here in Revelation some vision that explains all of our questions and it makes everything come clear. Um, No, because, because that's not the most important thing. The most important thing appears to be worship. We don't see the living creatures, the 24, the angels of the 24 elders lined up to, to bring their questions and grievances before the Lord because, because the only thing that counts in heaven, the only thing that anyone cares to do in heaven is to worship God. But again, what's happening on earth? Uh, what is the great sin of mankind? What is it the, that the Bible describes from cover to cover? It's the rebellious nature of God and that rebellion comes to, to, to particular focus on his refusal to worship. To, and in fact, to deliberately worship and serve the Creator rather than the Creator. Uh, uh, which must surely, uh, the creature rather than the Creator, which must, must surely be uh, an, an idolatrous outrage to all of heaven. I mean, you can almost, you can almost see the, uh, the inhabitants of heaven sort of hanging over the hanging over the, the balconies and looking down and thinking, what is wrong with these people? What, what, what's going on down there? <laughs> well, they really know, and we know. It's the craziness of sin. For God, the sovereign Lord, who is to be worshipped over all of creation, because there's nothing that more dignifies us who are God's image bearers than the crown of his creation. Um, nothing more appropriate, nothing more important than the worship of God. And I don't mean by that simply formal worship, but we worship God in all sorts of ways 
Uh, all of our life, all of the time. Chief end of man is what? To glorify God, to worship God and enjoy Him forever. The Westminster Assembly nailed that one, didn't they? All of which, which makes Revelation 4 such an important and enlightening chapter in the Bible. This fabulous picture of the worship of God as the chief end and purpose of man. Now, what does all of this um, what does all of this really mean to us? What does, why does God show himself uh, to, in, in heaven? Uh, what does he, he think we, we need to see? Uh, he shows us himself as the holy creator. He shows us the magnificent throne upon which he appears. He shows us how he's surrounded by these remarkable heavenly creatures who are engaged in continuous divine worship. So what am I telling you? Uh, that all of your troubles and all of your earthly problems can be solved simply by worshiping God here on earth as it is in heaven, amen? No, though that might help a good deal if in the midst of all of our troubles and all of our earthly problems, in the midst of this pandemic, if in the midst of anxiety and heavy cares and even heartbreaks, if we could remember uh, uh, that the world is in fact and reality, theocentric, and doesn't revolve around us, but revolves around God, and we are his people and his creation, and there's nothing more natural and nothing more satisfying to our souls than to worship God, our holy creator in everything. That is our glory. There's nothing else that creation can do this the way you can do it. Because you can use the words of God and repeat them back to him. You can do things... You can visualize, you can speak, you can create. You can do things for the glory of God. All sorts of things. That's our glory. It's our great purpose in everything we do. Working our jobs, raising our children, living out our brief lives as the crown of God's creation. Loving Him and loving one another. Living obediently before His face. Next week, in chapter 5, we move from this view of God as the Holy Creator to Jesus as the merciful Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for setting us straight. We might suppose there's all sorts of things that are wonderful for us to be doing, but we know as we read this passage and as we read throughout Scripture that the most wonderful thing we do is to worship you, however we do it, in the creation of our things we make, or our obedience in doing the things you called us to do, and in coming together, especially in coming together and worshiping you together as your people. Lord, make us a people who enjoy your worship. Help us to push aside um, the worship of this world, but always be engaged and, and um, Lord, uh, thrilled by the worship of your holy name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.